Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we are on episode 80. It is June 4th. My name is Tyler and of course I'm with Pratik and Nick. So starting with Pratik, how's your week been and how, how are you feeling? It's good. I came back from a conference. I've had like two or three hours of sleep. Always a fun time when you go to conferences and have these early flights back home. But then, you know, as the day goes on, you feel less and less tired, even though you haven't had enough sleep. So whenever that sleep, GA sleepiness comes on, is going to be a big boom. So Nick, how's it going with you, man? Doing pretty well as well, getting ready for a, a big trip to Africa. So we'll see how that goes. But yeah, excited. Also running on little sleep, just trying to get everything figured out, but excited for the show. Yeah, who needs sleep? On this show, we, we run with no sleep. It doesn't matter. We're here every single week. And you know what? Gas is $5 right now. We're having shootings multiple times a week. This is absolutely ridiculous. We have no leadership in Congress, none in the Senate. Our president has no idea what's going on. No one's running this country properly. And we're all exhausted and tired. Around two years ago, gas was like two fifty a gallon. I'm in Connecticut. It's currently five ten a gallon. Around when it was two fifty a gallon, everyone was going, oh my god, we have to cut production, all these issues. And now all these people are quiet because gas is so expensive and it's so crucial to people. But it's not just crucial to the middle class or the upper class. It's the lower class that are being affected the most. And it's absolutely ridiculous that we don't want to be on our own supply of oil here in North America and relying on these other autocratic nations in Saudi Arabia and Russia. And that's actually our diving to our first story. Pratik, lay it on us. What's going on with OPEC at the moment? So OPEC plus alliance boosts oil production as energy prices soar. So the OPEC oil cartel and allied producing countries, including Russia, will raise production by 648,000 barrels per day in July and August offering modest relief for a global economy suffering from soaring energy prices. The cost of oil, which began to rise sharply to start off the year, spiked after Russia's February 24th invasion of Ukraine. U.S. crude prices are now up 54% since the beginning of the year, and the international crude prices are also up almost 40% in that time. Gasoline prices have risen in tandem and hit another all-time high in the U.S. Thursday, and this is another potential problem for U.S. President Joe Biden and midterm congressional elections this fall so with the pandemic and with OPEC itself so OPEC has you know there's a variety of different countries involved in the oil cartel the main two that are the biggest producers are Russia and Saudi Arabia Russia is still one of the largest producers of oil in the world and Saudi Arabia is not far behind. Saudi Arabia has had very terrible relations with the United States since President Biden has taken office compared to how it was under President Trump. And much of that has led to OPEC resist, uh, you know, not providing as much oil supply to a more quicker extent. And the White House wanted OPEC to, you know, help out and engage more in trying to make gas prices go down. But because of the tensions that we've had in foreign policy, many of the countries did not really want to help the United States that are in OPEC because they were profiting from record soaring gas prices and energy prices. So, Nick, Tyler, do you have any thoughts on this story? I mean, it's very interesting, uh, like Tyler was saying, where a couple of years ago it was, okay, well, let's sort of ramp down on production. We don't care about these pipelines as much. And then now that we're really feeling the squeeze, of course, um, Biden is actually planning a trip to Saudi Arabia within this month to sort of kowtow to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. But again, it's very much, you know, when times are good, it's, it's easy to have one stance. But then once times get tough and you find out that, hey, we're actually a little bit more reliant on this group of people than we wish, 
doesn't matter how much we dislike them. You still got to play ball and work together. Yeah, we're completely relying on those people, and there's not much we can do at this moment to resolve that situation. But moving forward, there can be. Building pipelines like the Keystone Pipeline should be something that's implemented regardless of what Nick says. Don't listen to Nick, people. He loves the environment. Quite frankly, we're going to have Russia and Saudi Arabia and these other countries pumping enough oil anyway. So the environment's already screwed over. So in in, ter- in those terms, we have to make sure that we are producing enough to be self-reliant. And when these events do occur, uh, they can't actually withhold production. Sure, they're boosting production at the moment, but it's too little too late. We've already been affected. We're seeing the outcomes of what's been going on with this gas shortage so it's a real shame and as i've said before like obviously gas prices have been through the roof for a while this is before russia ukraine's invasion even i mean russia's invasion of ukraine even started but the main problem that allows all this stuff is the fact that america is too dependent on a lot of these other global actors we should never be dependent on bad actors like russia and saudi arabia to begin with i don't care how like our historical relationship has been with saudi arabia we all have our opinions about saudi arabia but you know Generally speaking, Saudi Arabia is not the most, you know, clean-cut country in the world. And then on the opposite side, Russia is, like, attacking other countries, you know, doing all kinds of sketchy things. But the fact is that we're, like, trying to do whatever we can to stop Russia and, you know, make sure that we're not trading as much with them. But the world is still going on. Like, Russia has had a lot more tensions with a lot of the European Union countries. But in the end of the day, everybody requires and needs a lot of these OPEC countries to provide energy and, you know, oil because the United States and some of these other players that have more production capabilities that are more democratic aren't stepping up in the ballgame. And I think even if America has done a lot in the recent past, even if oil production has gone up a lot in the United States, it was a little bit too late, a little, um, you know, he had to do it in a much faster period of time than it was done. And the other challenge with all that stuff is the fact that we're not going out of our way to bolster newer or newer waves of production. We're just looking at reserves and doing stuff that we can do to try to boost up production, but we're not going out of our way to create more production sources. We're not creating new pipelines. We're not doing stuff to make it so that we're not reliant on any of these other countries. And situations like gas prices being through the roof can be prevented, but we're not doing any to prevent anything in the long term all of our fixes are short-term fixes so i don't know i think some of this stuff i mean maybe there are going to be environmentalists out there that are going to be like let's support joe biden because gas prices are through the roof so now you might get more people using battery-powered cars whenever that you know trend starts but for the most part a lot of people are going to be pissed at the current presidency because whatever's happening in the current gas prices and current energy problems that are going on has some link to do with the current administration in power which may have not been as bad and it could have been prevented to a much more of an extent had the former president been in power but the fact is that, you know, you have Joe Biden there. This is going to go on for two more years. And the midterm elections are coming closer. And we don't know what's going to happen anytime soon. But look, I hope this is our last dance with oil. Tyler mentioned that, um, you know, the poorest in society often rely the most on fossil fuels. And that is a fact. However, at the same time, look at the communities that fossil fuels are destroying the health of. Look at asthma rates. Look at cancer rates. Look at other rates of disease where you find these predominantly in low-income minority areas that are around fossil fuel producing states. So not just states, but communities, for example. That's what, for example, if you go out and look at Chevron in California, if you look at all the stuff that's going on in Louisiana, you look at these communities and you talk to them 
and you say, is oil good? They're going to say no. <laughs> so I, it's, it's a tricky thing because at the same time, it would be like, hey, well, at the same time, I still need heating. I still need cooling. And for that, right now, we need fossil fuels. So I hope this is a last dance. But one thing I would offer is that the mainstream climate movement, they're a little watered down. You know, they're a little toothless these days. Sure, you have Extinction Rebellion and other people like that with their dumb protests blocking traffic, which I really think is dumb. Um, but that aside, I, I'm no arbiter on, the, on the, the, the case of it. But I think the mainstream environmental movement, even in academia, you look at it and they say, look, hey, it's true. We do need fossil fuels for poor people in the short term. However, in the long term, we should be moving towards transitioning away from this because of all the health benefits and the other climate benefits or environmental benefits. But number one, it's the people. But I think I think they need to be a little more, bit more radical. I think they need to get back to the roots and, you know, talk about Malthus, talk about all this other stuff and be like, you know what? The world is ending. It's complete chaos. Things are bad. People are going to die anyway. Let's just get off of this. OK, we need to suffer and die. And if they did that, then Biden would lose even more votes. <laughs> It's not Biden. No, critique. That's the thing. Those people aren't voting for Biden. Those people are going to vote for someone who, granted, Bernie's not on the ticket. But if you had someone to the left of Bernie, they would vote for them. Biden, liking the fossil fuel industry, like he's been doing the past two years, he's not a fan. Or the hardcore environmentalists, not a fan of Biden. Sure, sure, Nick. So all the poor neighborhoods are being struck struck with the cancer and all these toxins and asthma, and, and that's awful. But what about the fact that they can't get to work <laughs> To put food on the table to make it to next week, Nick. We're not talking about I told you years short term. in the future. I told you We're short talking term. about next week. Uh, Tyler, that's what I said. I said in the short term, fossil fuels, unfortunately, we're stuck with them for now. However, in the future, it would be nice if we weren't as reliant on them because and, we know the health impacts that these resources and, have. And I've talked about this before, and this is where me and Nick disagree, but that's why you need to bolster production to even higher limits. So then you reduce the necessity to like make it so like you know certain countries like saudi arabia are benefiting from them not having as much supply being generated in the, in the energy market because if america decides to bolster production oil and gas is going to be so cheap that no one's really going out of their way to like you know get into these businesses because oil is cheap and what that could do is then that will reduce gas prices as a whole so everybody benefits and then you could be all excited about all these energy platforms and green energy stuff all you want because then they're gonna go invest in those kind of things only things y'all need to do is put some like oh, some, you think you think that if oil companies make more money that. in oil yeah. that they're gonna somehow invest in green energy no. give me a break that's a no, joke look, that's I'm a joke saying, i know yeah, that's I'm wrong. saying that America should subsidize the production of energy as, you know, the country that they are, and they should focus on certain companies. They should even build companies that are going to be producing more oil at a faster pace. Fact is, they're never going to do that in any Biden administration because they just hear oil and start like, oh, no, we need to ban fracking and do all this crap. But then when things like this happen, they got nothing to say because they don't have any actual agendas. Their agenda is they're opposed to all this stuff, but until you have a solution to make it so that these things are much cheaper for the average American, you're never gonna accomplish anything on your green energy front because the green energy front only benefits the rich. It really hurts the poor. And all the poor people are the ones that use gas-powered cars. The only expensive, the only car that is, is a successful non-gas-powered car, alter car alternative is Tesla. And how many poor people do you see run driving around with Teslas? Not that many. It's the people that are wealthier that are buying Teslas. And now maybe Kia because they're trying to be all fancy. But in the end of the day, 
the fact is that if you ever want to change this policy you have to make it so that you make gas prices so cheap and the way you can do that is if america subsidizes the production of this stuff and when that okay, happens hold on gas is going to be much more cheap for everybody Look, in america Pratik, I, I agree. Making cheap gas is a good thing, but you can't say we're going to make cheap gas and then because we made cheap gas, people are going to start adopting electricity and investing in it because the cheaper gas is the less incentive people have to invest in those kind of things. But regardless, still, what Nick is saying essentially is if we don't want to maximize production right now for, for oil, we're just going to lay that that pain on poor people for now, even if it's temporary, because in the future it'll be better off. But in my opinion, you have to take care of the needs of like the lower income population at present. And that's the most pressing issue. And the way to do that is to have a sustainable source of oil that is a relatively cheap. Because as Pratik had mentioned, it's a good point. It's like you don't see lower class people driving these electric vehicles. Maybe in 10 years they will be able to. But we're not there yet. And because of that, we can't really be limiting production. And, and at their this solution point. is also that you need to have more public transportation because that's going to solve the problem. You need to have more trains that are moving people from place to place. The problem with that solution is those solutions are really only feasible in places that are big cities you don't see rural areas that are going to have like public transportation stations because there's not feasible for them to, those cities to have it and they don't have enough money to have it and the Pratik, fact where do most people live and work oh wait it's in cities wow it's no, almost but, like it'd actually know, be a big benefit it's a mix though it's not only cities i mean sure if there's like 55 56 percent of the people that live in cities what about the rest of the people they all live in rural areas and who are the people that are in deciding these election votes People that live in rural areas. The people that live in these big cities, they may have some few wins, but the fact is that you've even said this on the show, a lot of these places that are rural states tend to have a lot of Republicans that get elected. I mean, if it was just like a few cities like Detroit and New York City and Miami and LA, then yeah, always Democrats would always win everything. But the fact is that if, De if California wasn't in the United States, Republicans would win every single election in the United States. So the fact is that if you have to look at it in that That's like me saying if Texas Texas wasn't Critique. in the United States, then Democrats would now. win every election. Maybe. No, but, that's not true. But look, the California is experiencing like $8 a gallon for gas. So, I mean, fault, hey, that's though. what you're getting over there. It is their own <laughs> fault. But look, they're, they're part of the corporatist, environmentalist, elite, globalist agenda. And because of that, they're always going to be siding against the poor people. And that's why you guys need to listen to me and not Nick. And that's all I really have to Speaking say on that. Speaking of corporatists. <laughs> Speaking of yes, yeah, speaking. Sorry, guys, I'm feeling like a bit of a troll today. I don't know why. But speaking of corporatists, former hedge fund CEO David McCormick conceded the Republican primary in Pennsylvania for U.S. Senate to celebrity heart surgeon Mehmet. Is it Mehmet? Mehmet. Oz. Mehmet Oz, ending his campaign Friday night as he acknowledged an ongoing statewide account wouldn't give him enough votes to make up for the deficit. So as you may know, during the campaign, Oz actually got the endorsement of Trump and during the final two weeks of the campaign uh, said of McCormick that he was a candidate of special interest and the globalist in the Washington establishment. He was bad for the people. And that seemed to bolster Dr. Oz, even though Dr. Oz has been accused of uh, being a bit of a political tourist, a carpetbagger, as he's primarily a resident of New Jersey and has only recently moved to Pennsylvania. Um, so how do you guys feel about the situation? Dr. Oz, another celebrity winning a seat in the Senate. Uh, we're seeing a bigger trend of celebrities uh, getting into politics and really taking over these positions. Um, so so what are your guys' thoughts? Bring on Dr. Phil or Jerry Springer. That's who I want to see in the White House, okay? 
Send him to the top. Pratik? I think I think when it comes to this stuff, right now, whoever Trump is endorsing is generally winning. The only states that have had really lo- big losses with the Republican, um, you know, with Trump and have, have had big wins for the GOP establishment has been Georgia. All the other states have had record Republican wins in all their primaries and they've had to deal with whoever Trump endorsed. It doesn't matter whether they're the rich person or the poor person in the campaign. It doesn't matter if they're the popular person or the unpopular person in their campaigns. But the fact is that whenever Trump endorses them, somebody like Ted Budd, who is my representative, massively defeated somebody like Pat McCrory, who used to be the governor of the state, who was very popular in Republican circles. But he won by a landslide because Ted Budd was endorsed by Donald Trump and Donald Trump, whoever he endorses, generally have a larger seat on the table. Same thing when it comes to these kind of places because obviously Mehmet Oz is a big television guy, but David McCormick was endorsed by many of the GOP establishments, including Ted Cruz and Ron DeSantis. So whenever you see those kind of competitions, Donald Trump's message is the one that's winning. It's not the establishment people that are in the party. But let's think about why that's the case. So Donald Trump, under his presidency, the worst thing that occurred were all his tweets and his division. Sure, COVID took place, but even while COVID took place, the economy was doing well. All we've gotten under Biden's administration is just horseshit. We've gotten the uh, Afghanistan situation. We've got all this inflation. We've got even these gun issues that we weren't seeing prior. And we're just seeing more and more and more bad news coming from the, the presidency of Joe Biden, even if it's not directly related to him. It is still under his name and his presidency. And these are things we didn't see under Trump. So whether it's his policies or just poor timing uh, or just good timing with regards to Trump, I mean, it makes sense to me why people are so supportive of him. He said, let's drain the swamp. These people have no idea what they are doing. I'm going to reinvent the wheel here and make things better for you guys. And when he was in office, things were generally doing well and certainly not as bad as they've been over these past few years. So I am perfectly... Uh, comfortable understanding why people would want to support candidates that Trump supports. And I think Joe Biden is looking into, like, going into his next election is going to be under a lot of heat because I think Trump would beat him in a re-election at this point. Speaking of the main issue that's been going on with the Democrats that they've been trying to fight over has been guns. So this has been the main thing that Biden is trying to take on to try to help him win some primary, try to win some seats in the next general election and next primary election and in the general election is going to be the gun debate. And, you know, obviously the guns, gun policies have been relatively the same over a long period of time. But right now, that's the thing that's been catching traction. So recently, this Thursday, an Iowa shooter killed two college students and then himself um, in a college parking lot. And what this did is it created more controversies and more news stories on what's going on with gun shootings. And then various teachers came out and expressed their anger about these gun shootings, saying that they are not prepared for these guns for these shootings properly, and that government needs to take more action on resolving these challenges and resolving these problems so less kids are killed. So, Tyler and Nick. What's your thoughts on the recent gun shootings and the whole debate that's been going on, which we talked about in the last episode. So if you want to hear more about the gun control debate, we can talk. You can listen to our previous episode and get more details and information on it. Yeah, I'll let Tyler handle most of this. But I wanted to point out that it wasn't like it was some guy going into an elementary school or something. This one was shooting an ex-girlfriend and another girl who were both in their 20s and in college. So. It wasn't exactly a parallel situation, but again, goes to show that there are a lot of gun deaths in this country, and it seems to be happening every single day of every week. Tyler? Yeah, 
it's happening more and more. Um, it's a tragedy that this event occurred, but I think the really the conversation is occurring mostly with regards to schools and school shootings. Because while these acts are horrific, um, I think people are more worried about our schools and kids that are defenseless being uh, being shot up essentially. So. W- in regards to that, I have to say, um, what are we are we expecting these teachers being paid forty thousand dollars a year to become heroes and to become expert in guns simply to defend themselves and their students? I think that's kind of like a tall task. It's a little bit ridiculous. If anything, we should be adding security to schools apart from teachers uh, as a first measure to take against these. And you could say that, oh, we don't have the budget for that. But like, if we actually cared about gun violence and ending these school ending these school shootings. Then I think we would all support raising the the education budget enough to have security so that these events, even if they shall occur, should wouldn't be as uh, terrible as they are. Um, but as I said, this the shootings very unfortunate, but sc- shootings happen all the time, and it's just another uh, common occurrence in America at this point. And I think I'd agree with you, Tyler, with everything you said. But the problem is the Democratic Party are not fighting for that argument. They don't want more pe- more police officers that have guns armed in side of schools or police officers to be near schools they want to eliminate guns altogether and that's their main sure, conversation but, but republicans republicans are saying arm the teachers oh. but uh, going back to my point can you expect someone making not that much money to put their life on the line and say be armed because we're expecting you to defend schools that's a ridiculous argument as well and that's what republicans yeah. are saying I'm but just, i understand yeah. democrats are taking the and it's putting your life on the I, line and, to and, shoot a 15 year old who's a student of yours like that's not exactly yeah it, it's a little i think i think both sides have a problem though and my my only point is that where these kind of things have happened for a while gun shootings are not a brand new thing these things have been going on for decades Policies on these things have not changed at all over any of these long term, long, you know, amount of years. Places that have the most restrictions have tend to have the most violence as well. I mean, that's another factual argument. But I mean, and all these guns have been bought legally, too. So there hasn't been a big change in how legal gun sales change, legal, the legal gun market works. So a lot of things have happened the same way that they happened before. The only thing is that right now they need a talking point. The main talking point right now that Democrats have is they're like, all these gun shootings are happening. We need to address this problem. How do we address this problem? We need to have more bans. We need to limit uh, magazine sizes. We need to do certain things to ban handguns, ban machine guns, ban any type of gun that's going to be harder for, I mean, that's going to be more available to the public. And the problem is that this isn't going to lead to anything. Republicans are going to come in massive numbers to vote for another issue, which is going to be them protecting their gun rights. And Democrats, who have to fight for some issues right now because they haven't had many wins, are going to come in record numbers to try to get, you know, the policies changed with guns. And then when they take office, the policies are all going to take, stay the same. Same as when the Republic, if the Republicans take back office, the policies with guns are not going to change. So I'm just saying that that's the problem with this issue is there isn't any solution. No one's proposing a solution. And whoever is proposing a solution doesn't act on the solution whenever they take office, they, Republican or Democrat. They are proposing a solution for The Democrats, I think, what was it? The Judiciary Committee. Some One of the committees has moved forward a bill for a vote in the full house. And that's sort of trying to raise, not on all firearms blanket, but trying to instill more federal regulations and guidelines around um, how you end up storing your guns, how they end up being trafficked across state lines, how you secure them, 
um, raising the rate to 21 from 18 for certain types of semi-automatic rifles and shotguns. And so the Democrats are trying to pass some stuff. Now you could say, oh, that's not going to do enough. That's not going to fix it. But to say that neither party is doing I mean, anything, the I'm Democrats are the that, only but... party that actually gives a shit about this right now. The Republicans are like, oh, Second Amendment, we can't touch anything. It's so fundamentally such a fundamental idea to the core of our voters that we can never propose anything ever that would ever see, limit would, something to firearms. What I would propose is this. The problem is that right now they're doing that. It's the same as whenever Republicans were not in power. What were the things we were fighting about? We were trying to reduce Planned Parenthood funding. We were trying to do certain things to, you know, reduce the amount of, you know, certain things going on when it comes to gay marriage laws. We we're doing certain things to, you know, reduce the amount of abortions taking place. But that's what happens whenever you're not in office. When you're the, you know, the minority party. When you become the majority party, how much change has really happened? Republican or Democrat? I'm not even just saying Republican. I'm not just saying Democrats too, okay? Whenever Democrats take office, and I'm sure, like, Eight years from now, Democrats will take office again. They'll have a president and they'll have the Senate and House controlled by the Democrats. And, you know, the next four, eight years, you're going to have Republicans take control back in the House and Senate. But whenever there's total control in the House and Senate and the presidency, Democrats or Republicans have never really fought for any of these social policies. You've never really seen any social policy changes. Abortion policies changed because of the Supreme Court. Whenever whenever Republicans were there, they weren't banning abortion. But a lot of Republicans that were pro-life people expected them to do so, but they never accomplished anything on that front. And on the flip side, Democrats, whenever they've controlled all three houses, whenever they've had the issue with guns because they're all anti-gun for the most part in the party, some of them are more extreme than others but for the most part everybody doesn't like guns in the democratic party well whenever they tried to ban guns they've never tried to ban guns whenever they've controlled all the all the seats or all the you know houses in the government what they do is they don't do nothing the only time these issues become issues and they're wedge issues as they call them anyway is whenever they're the minority party in office because it's easier to talk about how we should ban guns and we should you know limit abortions or we should you know make gay marriage illegal whenever they're not in office when they are in office, they don't do any of that stuff. With Repub if there was more senators that were Democrats right now in the Democratic Party that were in office right now, they wouldn't even touch this issue. The only reason they're doing it is they know this is going to fail. And they're going to be like, oh, this is another talking point we're going to use for the next election. My point is that social policies never change in our country. The only people that ever change social policies in our country are the Supreme Court themselves. Whether that's guns, whether that's gay marriage, whether that's abortion. Because those are the three main social policies that we always have big old debates over over the two, the two parties. And that stuff never really changes. What about Obamacare when the Democrats had a supermajority? But Obamacare is different. I will say that, but Obamacare also needed the Supreme Court to pass it because if the Supreme Court didn't support Obamacare, a lot of the states at the time were suing the United States government. And if the Supreme Court, which at the time was also controlled by a Republican majority, if one of the Republicans didn't flip on the issue, a universal care, a universal health care would have never got anywhere. But that's the only alter. That's the only argument 
that you're right on that Democrats did accomplish something. But Republicans and Democrats, I'm even criticizing my own party here, so I'm not just criticizing Democrats, but whenever our parties are in power, they never accomplish any of their social policy goals. The social policy goals are just goals that they can talk about for the next time they run for office. And each time they run for office and they're like 15, 16 terms, if you're a house person or if you're like four or five terms when you're a senator, those policies all remain the same. What has any actual senator that has been in office for like six terms ever done to address any of these issues even when they've controlled all their seats so i don't know that's yeah, well, my I, I think pratik i think you make a good point in that like for instance i really only see these topics coming up in the news after like a severely tragic incident where they think it's going to be able to help them in the next election but these guns these shootings happen all of the time and they have happened all of the time for a more than a decade now and we're only seeing them come up like this story for instance isn't a story i would have seen had it not been for the school shooting a few weeks ago and i'm pretty confident in saying that so to me that tells me that's an issue they're only going to be talking about because it's a political issue and they know based off recent events it's going to be very popular and that's an issue they can dive into and particularly right they're a minority party they don't have much at risk and it's one of the only talking points they have at this point it's easy to always think this time is going to be different this time we're actually going to make some real change but i don't think that's the case here i think they're just grasping at straws trying to get whatever they can whatever political points they can um and you're right they are trying to make some moves on the gun gun front uh but I don't think any of it's going to pass, and I think we're going to move on just like we did from Afghanistan, just like we do from all of these issues, uh, until the next big issue pops up and people are going to forget about this, and then eventually there's going to be another shooting, it's going to pop back up, and the cycle will continue. What is this doomer mindset, Tyler? You aren't in the market for a new house, are you? (laughs) Well, if I were, I would not be too excited about that. Pratik, tell me why. All right, so U.S. home sales fell again in April as prices hit another record high. So home sales fell for the third consecutive month in April as rising mortgage rates and affordability challenges pushed many would-be home buyers out of the market. Still, prices continued to climb. There's an all-time high in terms of pricing, and the median price of a home in April was a record $391,200, which is a 14.8% increase from a year ago. So generally, when it comes to these housing prices, the price increase marks more than a decade's worth of consecutive year-over-year increases, which is the longest-running streak on record. But as the average rate on a 30-year mortgage crossed over 5% in April, the rising cost of financing a home pushed some prospective home buyers out of the market. So what this means is, is affordability is more of a challenge. It's harder for your average Joe to be able to own a home. If you are a middle class person, if you're one of those people that's tra- driving a you know gas powered car right now that you know is, is, a, is a gas guzzler, if you're in that situation, you're also having a hard time buying a house. And buying a house has a lot of challenges because you have to get a loan from the bank and all this stuff. And whenever prices like this increase, it makes it harder and harder for newer buyers to enter the or newer home buyers to enter the market. And all that does is it creates more inequality and creates more problems for the average middle class and the lower income people in America. So Nick and Tyler, what's your thoughts on housing? Buckle in, buckaroos. We're all screwed. No one's going to be able to afford a house. We can't afford to take out a loan to buy a house anymore. Um, This does not spell well for the housing market. We'll see if it's a bubble and the market crashes. I have no idea, obviously. The only thing I do know is the fact that the income to price ratio for buying a house over the past 50, 60 years has more than doubled. So 
Um, your salary is not worth what it used to be in terms of being able to buy and purchase a house in America. And that's a big issue for a lot of average income households, their ability to own property, which is one of the most valuable assets you can own. Um, so it's just another issue that we're facing at this time uh, at a point where inflation's taking over, the economy's been hit, might be entering a recession. Um, so things are certainly not looking good. Nick, what are it's, your thoughts? I think it's a shame that some Democrats point to rent control as a policy that you should seriously pursue, especially when the biggest driver of some of this is, look, People, as people move into these cities that are already pretty built up, we're not exactly adding new housing at rates that can keep up with the influx of people. As the population grows, you need to add more dwelling units for people to live in. And if you're not doing that, then don't be so surprised when prices shoot up out of reach of everyone else. And if we have some sort of reverse where, you know, remote, remote work could have driven people to move out more towards the suburbs, more towards a rural area um, where it's a little bit more affordable. And then that further prices out people in those communities. So it's, just, it's like this lose-lose situation. And I think the only solution here is just to incentivize people to be able to build more. And that sounds like, oh, well, that sounds easy, isn't it? Just, you know, lighten up on the, the zoning issues, lighten up on construction requirements, lighten up on all that. But frankly, that's not stuff that people really want to lighten up on. Maybe for zoning in terms of, hey, can you build a residential building here or can you build a commercial lot? Or can you build luxury apartments? Do you build low-income housing? What's the right balance? That's very tricky. But in terms of you know building buildings up to code, it's it's not like you can just take a bunch of bricks, slap them together, and be like, "Yep, we've got a brand new building. Go live in it." No one knows what the you know fire escape situation is. No one knows the window situation is. You know the the doorways. Everything has to be up to code these days, right? Um, electrical outlets. So. Things are a little trickier nowadays, but they're not that complicated. Building a house is still pretty simple. And I feel like if we had the right zoning policies in place, which unfortunately is you're not going to be able to federally fix that. So that's going to be, you know, back to the states and localities to figure that out. And I mean, we'll see who the winners are because they're going to attract more people and end up doing better in the long run. But for right now, we're all screwed. And whenever you have more restrictions when it comes to red tape and when you make it more expensive to follow these codes, when you make it more expensive to even buy these products and whenever the inspectors themselves make it harder for the home home owner or the person building the home to build these homes, that's just going to make the price go up even more. So the fact is that sometimes these regulations, these red tapes, these restrictions in place and zoning laws that are in place as well. The, it leads to the cost of the product going up. So that means the cost of the home, you know, building the home goes up, which then leads the cost of the price of the home to go up. And then when the price goes up, well, that just makes it harder for your ever average Joe to be able to purchase it. So then you're still getting more and more inequality because the only people that can afford these $300,000 houses are going to be the people that make close to $300,000. It's not going to be your people that are just making ends meet. So... I think I just reiterated what Nick said. So Pratik we'll said move it better. on to the next Let's story. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we're all screwed. We get it. What's up next? <laughs> just to add to another sad story. But Miami is currently facing hurricane conditions as massive flooding on the streets of Miami have left more cars stranded and continually provide challenges, uh, challenging conditions for many civilians. This tropical storm has also hit the shores of Cuba, Bermuda, and the Bahamas today as the conditions continue to worsen. So this is a story that, you know, we don't have that much details on. It's a story that's building. 
But there is a potential hurricane that will, you know, hit the shores of Miami. And it may ease off a little bit. But right now, they're having a lot of flooding problems in the city because they have a lot of drain issues in that city. And that's caused there to be a lot more people that are stranded. It's led a lot of cars to not move. And people, you're worried that people are going to start, like, having a lot of issues that aren't living on the streets or people that are trying to move from place to place because they can't physically do that at the moment. Yeah. See, the environmentalists don't want you to afford gas to escape from these certain <laughs> events. Um, tropical storms, look, they're going to happen in Miami, the Bahamas, Cuba. This is this is what happens. We have tropical storms. It's not something that is new to any of us, but they are certainly under stress from uh, climate change and whatnot. Um, these are things we are expecting to see an increase in over the next 50 years. That is one area that I think having very strict zoning laws is actually very important. If you're building in an area that repeatedly gets pummeled by tropical storms and hurricanes, you should probably be building buildings that are much more resilient than a building in the middle of Kansas, where maybe you have a stray tumbleweed that hits your porch every two months. But apart from that, nothing really going on. Although, who knows, maybe you have tornadoes. But all that aside, like if you are building something where you're constantly in these storm paths. Thankfully, Florida is up to up to speed on this. And that is where zoning is good. But other parts of the country, get your act together, build more housing units. And uh, Miami's trash anyway. Don't move there. Yeah. Do, so do, do you know who was wishing they were getting a tropical storm instead of something else at the moment? Ukraine. So Pratik. How long has Russia been in Ukraine and how long do they continue to stay there? All right, so Russia may be in Ukraine to stay after exactly 100 days of war as of Friday. So when Vladimir Putin sent troops into Ukraine in late February, the Russian president vowed that the forces would not occupy the country. But as the invasion reached its 100th day on Friday, Moscow seemed increasingly unwilling to relinquish the territory it had taken in the war. So the ruble is currently the official currency in the southern Kherson region alongside the Ukrainian Hervinia. Residents there and the Russian-controlled parts of the Zaporozhye Vizia region, I can't pronounce that word, I apologize, are being offered expedited Russian passports. So this is around the Donbass area and the Moscow-backed leaders of the separatist areas in eastern Ukraine's Donbass region, which is mostly Russian-speaking, have, you know, been trying to they've been expressing similar intentions where they want uh, the Russians to occupy their area. But as well, a lot of them, those people want the Ukrainian government to, um, you know, prevail in that area. So there's a lot of mixed uh, feelings in the Donbass region. Um, Within that region, Putin recognized the separatist self-proclaimed republics as independent two days before launching the invasion, and fierce fighting has been underway in the east for weeks as Russia seeks to liberate all of the Donbass. And as we all know, Ukraine has been doing a very good job at preventing Russia from taking more territory, and Russia has been severely restricted into this particular part of the Donbass region, and they haven't really been able to expand any further. And, you know, their president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, said that we have defended Ukraine for 100 days already. Victory will be ours, he said. So, Nick, Tyler, what's your thoughts? Well, I I just think that Russia plans to occupy these territories for the foreseeable future. Um, According to this article we're looking at, um, certain regions are now being offered expedited Russian passports. 
Um, and the Kremlin-installed administrations in both regions have talked about plans to become part of Russia. It seems like that's the ultimate end goal. It does cost a lot to occupy a nation for long periods of time to try to get them to become part of Russia. I'm, I'm not sure how feasible it is, but it seems like that is the intention of the Kremlin at the moment. We all know Vladimir Putin is undergoing some struggles, possibly with cancer. Um, we'll see how that goes. But it, it seems like even if he were to be taken out of power, whoever was next up would continue this invasion because they've it's like the sunk cost fallacy. They've already put so much into this. They can't simply walk out at this point. They would be seen as weak. They need to get some victory for what they've done. So I don't see them leaving really in the next few years, certainly, I think they're going to be occupying it and trying to make them certain regions part of Russia, even if they can't occupy all of Ukraine. And the U.S. president, Joe Biden, meanwhile, said that he believes that there's going to be a negotiated settlement to end the war. And when he was asked if Ukraine should give up territory in exchange for peace, the president said it's their territory and I'm not going to tell them what they should and what they shouldn't do. Initially, at least, annexing more land from Ukraine was not believed to be the main goal of the invasion. And it was widely thought the Kremlin, Kremlin intended to install a pro-Moscow government in Kiev. Nick, what's your thoughts on all this stuff? I think it's a little embarrassing for the Russians to get beaten this badly. I mean, they've done similar things. Let's say uh, South Ossetia, or not South Ossetia, just Ossetia, Abkhazia. You know, you look at Georgia, which is three, three and a half million people approximately. Ukraine is more than 10 times the size of Georgia as a country and armed to the teeth. So I'm not sure that Russia can do the, the usual playbook that, granted, it did, it did successfully pull off with Crimea, and with the war that's been going on in eastern Ukraine for the past eight years or so. But at the same time, if you look at how Russia has treated these former satellite states that were once part of the USSR and sort of backed these separatists and breakaway regions and sort of formed these uh, essentially autonomous self-governing zones that have the military backing of the Russian government, I'm not sure that playbook is going to hold up here, especially when you have this much, this much money and weaponry pouring into Ukraine, where this is like the only country that can actually do something about any sort of Russian occupation or Russian backing of a part of the region that was already trying to do its own separatist movement, where it's, I don't know, it's sort of like in the Civil War with the United States, if the South was like, yeah, we're just going to have France come in and permanently station troops here. That's just going to be how it is. And you're going to suck it up and deal with it. Uh, I don't think that would have been acceptable to anyone, and I don't see why the Ukrainians would accept any sort of loss of territory here. And I think I, I, I get I get they wouldn't accept it, but also what I said before, it's like, do you think the Russians would be willing to accept the fact that they got nothing from this war? They would look so weak to the war. Not that they don't look weak, weak now, but if they were to leave without anything, they would look so incredibly weak. Uh, the Kremlin would look weak. The Russian people would look weak. I don't think they're willing to accept that. So I think at all costs, they're going to try to get something. And if that includes annexing a region or being able to occupy it for as long as they can, I think they're willing to do that. And I think the other problem here, though, too, with that, with what Tyler said, is that so Russian forces keep people in an information vacuum. It's kind of like a censorship type thing where Ukrainian websites are no longer available to Russian public. So Russians themselves in Russia have zero clue of exactly what's going on in Ukraine right now. Well, well, not all Russians. I would say the older Russians have no clue. I think the younger Russians are generally 
more savvy. They know what VPNs are. They're, I'm sure they're hearing more of what the world is saying about the event. But I, for a lot of Russians, certainly that's the case. And so right now, especially in Russian-occupied cities in southern Ukraine, people with pro-Kremlin views have replaced mayors and other local um, leaders who disappeared in what Ukrainian officials and media said were kidnappings. Russian flags were raised and Russian state broadcasts that promoted the Kremlin's version of the invasion supplanted Ukrainian TV stations. And basically, right now, especially with the ruble, is introduced as the second official currency in the Kherson and the Zafirzhenia regions, which are two of the places that are under Russian control. But, I mean, as we've all said, with Russia, the problem is, is that... We've been, you know, I mean, we when we when we when this war started, everyone in their, you know, right mind thought that it wouldn't take Russia long to take over Ukraine, but Ukraine has done a very good job of defending them. Obviously, America has poured billions, billions of dollars into helping Ukraine defend the region, but billions, billions, billions of dollars. <laughs> Trump words, but if Trump was in office, he would have said that much better than Biden. <laughs> but overall, though, like. I think with Ukraine, I think they've done a really good job for the first 100 days. And I hope that for the next 100 days, if Russia remains there longer, they continue to hold their cell, hold their front and they remove, they make, basically make it so Russia, you know, is persuaded to leave the region and, you know, accept defeat. But I don't know how quickly this is going to happen because it's Russia and you can't really kick out Putin and whoever replaces Putin is going to be the same thing. Well, I'm actually not sure if it's the fact that Ukraine has done so good or that Russia has done so poorly and their logistics were so god-awful that they they basically assumed they would walk through Ukraine in several days and that they wouldn't even need backup supplies is what seems to have happened for this whole event so it's like I, I I really give props to the Ukrainian people and the fighters and whatnot but I think it was more the Russians just dropped the ball on this whole situation agreed and speaking of giving props Unless Nick has something to say. Nick, no, great points. Comments. I think um, just to bring up something that a lot of other people have brought up, it's, you know, at the start, everyone was pretty shocked that Ukraine had held on for so long. And then now, of course, revisionism kicks in and we're saying, oh, look at things like Vietnam with the United States. We like <laughs> much, much more powerful country getting fought to a standstill by a bunch of peasant farmers. So this has happened actually a lot in history. So you know, maybe it's not such a fluke after it ha- all. It has, but it's more embarrassing when they're, like, on your borders. <laughs> good, good point. Like, at least we had some distance between Vietnam, but they're, like, neighbors. But as, as, as Pratik had mentioned, we do have another exciting story for you to close out the day. Uh, we got Queen Elizabeth II becoming the first British monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee earlier this year after marking 70 years of service to the people of the UK or, uh, realms and the Commonwealth. Uh, the most important useless person in the world, the Queen of England, guys, doing nothing for 70 years and having billions of dollars in her pocket. Congratulations for just living that long i am so happy for you guys long live the queen what are your guys thoughts <laughs> i don't think she's that useless but it's funny how you took the take on it i think that i mean it's a memorable occasion i think with queen elizabeth she is like the head head secretary of state basically for the united kingdom so she leads all the diplomatic negotiations and affairs of the united kingdom on behalf of the british government so 
I mean, if y'all have watched The Crown, The Crown has really, you know, provided more insight and knowledge to a lot of the stuff that actually goes on in the, you know, in the British monarchy. But it's very interesting that, you know, she's made it 70 years. Most British monarchs die or, you know, remove, I mean, you provide the next heir to them, the throne before they you know leave office however with queen elizabeth she's been there forever um prince charles who was supposed to be the heir to the throne never really got the ability to be the heir to the throne because of all his scandals especially after he divorced his wife princess diana and then now the throne has kind of moved on to her grandsons um you know and william and kate or Kate is his wife, but Prince William. So hopefully, you know, we get to see the monarchy, you know, continue to last. And I hope that, you know, we get to see more of these kind of parades and celebrations because this is what makes it exciting to be British if somebody is from England. Wait, I thought you were American, Pratik. What are you saying? Long live the monarchy. I hope they last. I hope there's more parades. What the hell is this shit? No, if I even don't have a new leader every four years, I'm going to throw a fucking riot. Get out of here with that crap. Nick? I'm also surprised by Pratik. You know, sometimes he mentions, you know, some family members going back in India and the struggle for independence. And here we have it. Generations later, Pratik is like, oh, you know, the queen wasn't so bad. Let's bring it back, baby. First he doesn't like guns, and now he likes the queen. Oh, my God. Well, my family is dual citizens with the UK, so, you know, it's kind of like a mixed bag here can't really be for them or against them you're kind of in the neutral zone regardless though i think you know it's a momentous occasion and i'm you know it's exciting for the people that are you know excited about the crown and obviously whenever the monarchy has celebrations they're very intense and exciting and they're having this big old platinum concert in the you know in the in the uh, buckingham palace right now so i mean for the people that are excited about the crown and royalty and wanting to live the excitement that they you know see then you know for them this is an exciting occasion because queen elizabeth ii is basically the longest serving monarch that they've had in their history yeah, I've never understood the obsession with the monarchs. It's like you're born into this position of power. You've done nothing to earn it. You exist, and now you have all this wealth at your hands, and everyone loves and adores. Like, get out of here with that. I, I really don't have any respect for it. Um, I don't care that she's been around this long, and I don't see it as impressive. What about Kim Jong-un? Nick? You don't respect him? Well, he's pretty impressive. <laughs> but, I mean, the dude's, the dude's hit 18, 15 hole-in-ones on his first golf course. Um, I don't think he's ever gone to the bathroom. Like, he has a lot to brag about. But the queen? Yeah, the queen <laughs> you know what's actually funny about the queen? I remember reading something a while back saying that the crown actually brings in more money than it costs the British taxpayer. And I thought that was very interesting. Because on the one hand, you're like, okay, if the financials add up where this is a boon, this is a benefit to the uh, British economy, or I guess the, the economy of the UK. We're not saying British anymore. It's not a couple hundred years ago. But in terms of, I don't know, I just thought that was interesting. Where on the one hand, you're thinking, oh, why do we need this figurehead? get out of here. This is, you know, a relic of a bygone era. But at the same time, if you're bringing in money, if you're bringing more attention to the British Isles, then hey, maybe it's not so bad. Pratik, do you agree with that? Yeah. I you're don't the know. dual citizen. Yeah, here. I agree. I'm not dual citizen. My family is. That's I'm right, Pratik. American you're an American, citizen. okay? I don't I'm get the American. love for the queen. Get out of here. We're yeah, just, we're like a month from July, okay? We're a month from July. <laughs> you're going to say this stuff? 
I think I think I'm excited about the Queen too, is because whenever I was um, ten years old, I went to the in England for the first time, and the Queen Elizabeth was giving some speech at the House of Lords. She was coming out in her car. They had a big old parade going on with all those people on the horses, you know, with the fake ceremonial army people. And then I got to see the side where Prince Philip was sitting because I didn't. I was unlucky to see the side where Prince uh, where Queen Elizabeth was sitting. But I got to see that occasion, and most people that live in the area may have never seen Queen Elizabeth in person ever in their lives. So, it's exciting to me, because, you know, it's like the first actual celebrity that I kind of saw, who was pretty Look, I'll take Kim Kardashian any day of the week, but hey, <laughs> that's just me. Guys, that has been episode 80 of Politicana. A little update um, next week. Uh, Nick isn't going to be here. He's going to be traveling. He's going to Africa, as we mentioned. Um, I, I'm gonna, we're gonna try to get the show out, just me and Pratik, and then have Nick join in the following week. Certainly gonna miss him, but I'd like to get those episodes out weekly. Um, but regardless, guys, thank you for tuning into episode 80, and we will catch you next time. Later.